Well, good morning. How is everyone this morning? Man, it is great to be here at Real Life Church. It is an honor to be able to be here. Um, I never, ever uh, underestimate uh, what God can do in a service. Amen. And even in a time when we are singing songs, it's, it's not just us lifting a message or a sacrifice to God. He also can speak to us. You guys believe that? And, and uh, you know, he spoke to me this morning he, in my heart. It wasn't, you know, like this audible voice or anything, but I could just feel God uh, speaking to me. And uh, worship is such an important part of our lives. It's not just about Sunday morning. It's about our life, just giving our lives to him as a uh, sacrifice of worship every single day. And as I think about missions, because we're missionaries, I love missions. And we usually think about uh, a passage of Scripture that's known as the Great Commission. And in Matthew chapter 28, you don't need to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 28, in verse 19, Jesus says to his followers, Go into all the world and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. But something happens before he gives that command. And I, I don't want you to miss this. If you go to verse, if you go before that, those verses and you get into the context, Jesus is, is recently been uh, resurrected. He's, he's alive again. We just sang about the risen Christ, right? We just sang about that. And here in this passage, we have the risen Christ. And then the disciples, they go to him. And when they see him, what do they do? They worship him. They bow before the living, risen Christ, and they worship him. And I think about that worship, and I think about missions, and the way, the order of things in that passage, we see that worship comes before missions. Worship precedes missions. We are not going to go into our communities and go into our states and our countries and all across the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ if we are not worshipers of Jesus. Love him with your lives. Worship Jesus. Bow before him. That is something that needs to take place in all of our lives on a regular basis. You know, we didn't wake up one morning, you know, 18 years ago and say, hey, we want to be missionaries. This is a process that God did in our lives. In fact, it started in my life when I was 16 years old. I'm sure God was working before that. But at 16 years old, that's when I accepted Christ as my personal Savior. Jesus came to Scott, and I had an personal encounter with him with the gospel of Jesus Christ and I trusted him as my savior at 16 a couple weeks later I begin to have this desire to be in the word of God and as I read the Bible on my own no one telling me to do so I was in the Bible reading and I came to 2nd Corinthians chapter 10 verse 16 and I will never forget this verse and my kids always say, Scott, you bring that verse up in every single sermon you preach. And it's, it's just about true. But that verse talks about Paul's desire to preach the gospel in the regions beyond. Always wanting to go farther with the gospel. 
And that's when the seed of missions was planted in my heart. But I will tell you this, that I had my life planned out. I was planning on going into the Air Force. I wanted to be an Air Force pilot or a Navy pilot. I wanted to be, those of you who are my age, I wanted to be Maverick from Top Gun. You guys seen that? All right. That, I was Maverick. In fact, I was doing everything I can to prepare for that. In fact, I was already a pilot at that time. Um, I, I had my, I soloed in a plane before I could drive a car on my own. My mom had to drive me to the airport so I could get in the plane and take off all by myself. So this is the, this was my life. I had my life planned out. I was a pilot. I was going to be a fighter pilot. So I fought with God for a while. A year later, when I was 17, I said, okay, Lord, I give up. I want to be your missionary. I want to go into the regions beyond. I want to do that. And I give my life to you as a sacrifice of worship. Same kind of story for my wife, Christy. You can wave. Um, she also, uh, at a young age, accepted Christ as her savior. She's a missionary kid. She grew up in South America. Her parents were missionaries in Colombia and Chile. So that's where she grew up. And uh, her grandparents were also missionaries in Chile for 40 years, 40 years. Uh, so when I married into this family, it's like I didn't have much of a choice, but anyways, um, yeah, she also had an encounter with Jesus Christ where she trusted the gospel and she gave her life to Christ when she was at a very young age, but also as a teenager, God began to deal with her about cross-cultural missions, global missions, and she also surrendered her life. And so it was a process that took us all the way to Baptist Bible College here in Springfield, and that's where we met. And uh, we got married in 1996. Uh, we uh, were approved as uh, Baptist Bible Fellowship International Missionaries to go to the Middle East in the year 2000, uh, the same year that our daughter was born. And uh, we were super excited about going to the country of Lebanon we knew that God had called us to go, and we raised our support, and we moved there in 2002. And we really thought that we were going to be there for the rest of our lives. Well, we, God had other plans. Pretty soon, I'll sh- we'll show you a video. gives our, our 18 years as missionaries. It gives that story in about three or three and a half minutes. Uh, so you have to listen very closely. Um, but... Uh, our family has grown since the t- since 2000. Our second Chandler, 15, born in 2002, just about 16. Yes, uh, he is on his way to getting his driver's license. He's got his permit and always wanting to drive. Dad, can we go out and drive now? Um, uh, my daughter, Joy, she's 18. Uh, she'll be starting uh, Southwest Baptist University in the fall. And uh, we're very excited about that. And then our la- last two, uh, Chad and Chase, they're twins. Uh, they were the biggest surprise when we were living in the Middle East. When we, I was just uh, sharing with Tim uh, that they were the, or maybe it was with Jason, but the biggest surprise of all because we just had made the decision to stick with two kids. And then God said, no, you're not. So now we're sticking with four. And... Uh, at least we think that's the case at this point, right? That's good. So we're a family of six. Uh, our email address is global6 at gmail.com. 
And uh, we've been uh, missionaries as a team, a family, uh, since 2000. And uh, wow, we've been all over. Uh, we've been in uh, Colombia, South America for the last 11 years. And usually the biggest question that we receive is, why Middle East and then Colombia? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, I have to be honest with you, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to us either. Uh, we had a lot of questions, and the biggest question that we had was, why God? Why? Um, I'm going to go ahead and show you our video uh, right now and explain a little bit of why God actually took us to Colombia. So the Latin initiative uh, is the answer to why God took us from the Middle East all the way to Colombia, South America. The Great Commission is not just for the American church. I know that we think that sometimes we're the, you know, the best in the world, and, and there are some people who really think that. Um, and, and there's even been this phrase that the, that the American church is the, is the white hope of the world. And uh, that is so wrong. And uh, really, honestly, as we think about uh, something that's taking place in our world, uh, we will see that we are actually the minority. In fact, in 1800, in 1800, 99% of all evangelical Christians lived in North America and Europe. In 1900, 80% lived in North America and Europe, and 20% in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. Now, you fast forward to 1979, and we have a 50-50. So 50% in North America and Europe, and 50% in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. Now, you go all the way till today, right now, you will see that only 23% of evangelical Christians live in North America and Europe. And 77% live in places like Latin America, Africa, and Asia. Now, there are several observations and conclusions that we can make from that. But the first one, the one that I really want to focus in on right now, is as we see that global shift we also should see a shift in who the missionary force is. And we also should see a shift in our strategic role in missions as Americans. And so as Americans, our role is changing as we empower, train, and mobilize people from Latin America, Africa, and Asia to actually go into places where the gospel is not. And so as we think about the Latin initiative, the goal of the Latin initiative is just that, to train and mobilize Latin Americans to go to places where they can really fit in, in places where I cannot. You know, when we lived in the Middle East, never were we mistaken as being Egyptians. I don't know why. Never were we mistaken as being Lebanese. Or even in Colombia, they never think we're Colombian. You know, it might have something to do with the blonde hair, the four kids with the blonde hair. I don't know. Maybe. But when you look at uh, Latin American and you look at this, uh, look at this uh, uh, picture, um, 
Fast forward, we're going to be working through um, with MANA Worldwide as we lead this Latin initiative. But as you see this picture here, we see that the Great Commission is not culture-specific. We see that we have my friend here who ministers in the Middle East. He's from Mexico along with his family. And we can see here that, man, it's hard to tell him apart from the rest of them. That never happened to us. We always stuck out like a sore thumb. We always do. But as we look at the physical aspect of Latin Americans, we see how they can really adapt and fit in. So our friends there in northern Iraq, they live and minister among unreached peoples. And they're leading people to Christ. And that's amazing. They're living in places where many of us cannot. The Great Commission is not just for the American church. It's also for the Latin American church. And as we look at this next picture, we see that God has uniquely shaped them to live in different ethnic societies and integrate into those societies. Now, if I ask the question, which one here do you think is Arab and which one do you think is Latin American? Would you say number one is Latin American? Would you say that she is Arab? Or would you say that the second one is Arab or Latin American? It's hard to know. The interesting thing is, is that the first picture, my friend from Mexico actually has Lebanese or she is, has Lebanese ancestors. And so we see this, it's, it's not just about their physical aspect. It's about a cultural background that many of us don't even know exists. Many Latin Americans find their roots from the Middle East. And so she has a particular plan to actually go back to Lebanon with the gospel, where her grandparents and great-grandparents were from. And then we have other people who are wanting to go to Iraq, wanting to go to Syria. They feel the Lord calling on them was just in Colombia and preached this message and taught on missions for a whole week. And at the end of the week, six people surrendered to go wherever God would lead them to go. And many of them wanting to go to the Middle East. And as I ask this, as I look out here this morning, how many of you are ready and willing to go to a place like Syria? Wow, that's actually very common, all right? In fact, when we first went to Colombia and we began teaching this message, no one was raising their hands. So it's been a mentoring process of 11 years, and now we're seeing fruit of those labors, uh, of that labor. The Latin initiative, as we think about it, as we think about how God can use other people groups to reach the unreached, I think we really need to really adopt that multicultural plan that God has always had. As we think about the Great Commission and how it is not culture-specific and that it is for everyone, every Christian that knows Christ, we must understand that sometimes there is a sacrifice involved. When we lived in Egypt... We, uh, uh, we had the opportunity to be a part of a small group, and we had a, uh, there was a young lady involved in, those, in that small group, and she was from England. And one night she told us a story of when she met someone from Fiji. 
Now, I've got a picture here I want to show you. This is Thomas Baker. Thomas Baker. Anyone ever heard of Thomas Baker? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Thomas Baker. Anyone? No one. Okay. Well, Thomas Baker, back in 1859, long time ago, 1859, was the very first person to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to Fiji. And as my friend from England met this young lady from Fiji, uh, she, they, they began to have this conversation, and the, the young lady from Fiji found out that our friend was from England. And she's like, oh, wow, Thomas Baker is also from England, or was also from England. You know, because of him, I am a believer. I am a follower of Christ because of him. And she began to just say thank you for sending him as if, you know, our friend was part of that process. But thank you so much for sending Thomas Baker. Sorry we ate him. Sorry we ate him. See, back in 1859, Thomas Baker and his team, or seven from his team, were cannibalized. I'm sure that Satan, when that happened, he was like, man, I'm winning. I'm gaining territory. The gospel will not flow here in Fiji. These people will be lost forever. But yet, several generations later, we see a young lady from Fiji testifying to the fact that Thomas Baker took the gospel there. To this day, if you go to Fiji, you can go to the museum, and there you will see the leather soles of his shoes, his Bible, and a picture of him. In fact, it was just just a few years ago, I think it was like 2000, 2001, 2002, they had a special ceremony where the descendants of Thomas Baker went to Fiji, and the descendants of the tribe who ate him, they had a special forgiveness ceremony where the tribe asked forgiveness from the family of Thomas Baker. You think that his death had an impact? Absolutely. Absolutely. The big question that I have is why? Why would Thomas Baker be willing to go to a place like that so dangerous and give his life? Why is it that I have friends in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, Jordan, in Yemen, that preach the gospel of Jesus Christ on a regular basis with their lives and are bold with the gospel even though they live under threat? Why would they be willing to do that? Why would stories like Jim Elliott, maybe you've heard of Jim Elliott, went to Ecuador for the very first time to a tribe to take the gospel, landed their plane. That same day, they were killed by the tribe they were trying to reach. Why? Why is it that, that we have people from different cultures? Why are we teaching Latin Americans to go to places like, like the Middle East where no one else wants to go? Why would they be willing to go? Why are there Americans wanting to go all over the world with the gospel? And why are there churches wanting to send them and support them to go? Sacrificially give so that they can go. Why? Well, John 14, 6 says, and Jesus is talking here. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through him, right? You see, and if that is true, then that is reason enough to go to these kind of places. 
that is reason enough to step out of our circle of comfort, our bubble, and take the gospel to someone who hasn't heard it, even right here in our own communities. It's worth it. It's enough reason. Maybe you've heard the Muslim creed. What Muslims repeat on a, on, a regular, on, a, on a regular basis over and over throughout the day. In fact, in the Middle East, there is graffiti. But most of the graffiti that you see is actually religious. And so you will see written on the walls the creed of the Muslim, which says, La ilaha illallah wa Muhammad Rasulallah. Which means there is no God but God and Muhammad is his messenger. And they're willing to die for that. And we've seen that throughout the years. Even when Islam began to grow in the time of Muhammad and began to expand throughout, they did this with their lives. And of course, taking others in the process. We see that today. We see Muslims that are willing to... Uh, commit suicide while bombing places and even willing to send their children recent news a few weeks ago in Indonesia, sending their kids out with bombs wrapped around them to kill the infidels. You see, they're willing to die for what they believe. Well, what about us? Are we not willing to die for what we believe in? Are we not willing to send people to go to places that they might actually die? See, martyrdom, the idea of being a martyr, dying for the cause of Christ, is not something of the past. In fact, 2016, there were over 90,000 martyrs. 90,000 people who died for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is it worth it? Well, 1 Timothy 2, 2 5 says for there is one god you see we we can we can say that we believe with the first the first part of the muslim creed which is there is no god but god of course they have a different totally concept of who god is but there is only one god but here's where we see a difference and there's one mediator between god and men and who is that church it's jesus And if Jesus really is the only mediator between God and men, then we've got to get his name out. We've got to preach the gospel. And we might think, or Satan might think, that he's winning in certain occasions when he sees Christians die in the Middle East, when he leads uh, tribes to cannibalize people like Thomas Baker, the 90,000 martyrs of 2016. Satan might think that he's gaining ground or winning. But I tell you this morning that there is nothing that can stop the flow of the gospel. Nothing. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, leads us into victory. And through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him where everywhere 
the church, what this means is we're going to march all the way around the world. We're going to march even to the darkest areas, the most dangerous places with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are going to make the name of Jesus Christ irresistible. And nothing will stop the flow of the gospel. We will have victory. Fast forward all the way to the end of time. When we're around the throne of God, we see people around, from around the world, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, worshiping Jesus Christ. The risen Jesus Christ. So we know we have the victory and nothing is going to stop us. Let's live like that. Let's give like that. And let's pray like that. So as we think about the scriptures, we even see how Satan has his strategies. And I can imagine that in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, I believe that Satan thought that he had really chosen a man that was going to do his bidding and he was going to win. And that was with a man named Saul. Now, it says here in verse 1 that he was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He hated the disciples of Jesus. And he was participant in the very first martyr, the killing of the very first martyr, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7. As they went to stone him, they took their jackets off and laid their jackets at the feet of Saul because he approved unto his death. So this man wasn't just about threats, he was wanting to kill them. And he wasn't just about staying in Jerusalem. As you look in verse 2, or in ver- continue in verse 1, it says that he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to go all the way to Damascus to find anyone of the way, even women and men, okay, that he would bring them back to Jerusalem bound to take them to prison. You see, Saul, this is what he lived for. This was his passion in life. He was willing to travel the known world to stop the way. And the interesting thing is, is he was doing all of this in God's name. He thought he was serving God. Satan thinking that he's winning. I found the one that will do what I need to be done in order to keep the world lost. I'm glad the story doesn't end there because in verse 3, he gets on his horse and he gets he starts traveling. He's on his way to Damascus. And then all of a sudden there's a huge light. There's suddenly a light from heaven. And he falls to the ground. He falls off his horse. In other places we see that he loses his sight in that bright light. And then he hears a voice. And he says, that voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. This encounter with Jesus transforms Saul's life. Saul is never the same. Now, I don't think that Saul really understood at this moment the implications of the phrase, I am Jesus. But I do believe he starts connecting the dots. 
He says, I am Jesus who are you who are you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. All of a sudden he's thinking, Wow, Jesus, this man that I thought was just a man, died and was buried, and that was it. I thought these rumors of the resurrection were simply rumors. Then he talks with him. He has a conversation with Jesus. He has a decision to make at this point in his life. At this, and just like every time in our lives when we are encountered with Jesus, when Jesus comes and he speaks to us in our hearts through the word of God, we have a choice to make. Will we follow him? Will we obey him? Or will we choose to walk the other way? Right here, Jesus says, go into Damascus and wait there. Saul chooses to go. He goes. He waits there. I believe that this is the very first thing that that can inspire us as Christians, as followers of Christ. Saul's transformed life. See, later on, he's called Paul. So Paul's transformed life inspires us, first of all, to love Jesus. But not just to say we love him. To not just come on a Sunday morning and say and sing that we love Jesus. But to love Jesus with our obedience. To love Jesus going out and obeying him even on Monday, on Friday night. On Saturday night, every day of the week, and every night of the week, are we willing to love Jesus with our obedience? And every follower of Christ is faced with this. Will we trust Jesus and obey him and love him with our obedience? In this story in Acts 9, we see another person on the scene. His name is Ananias. Ananias, he is a believer. He's the disciple of Jesus. Jesus goes to him and says, I want you to go and talk to Saul. In fact, I've got a special message for him, and I want you to give it to him. And and in this passage, Ananias is like, do you realize who this man is? He's a terrorist. You want me to talk to this man? He's terrorizing your church. And you want me to talk to him? You want me to lay my hands on him so that he receives his sight? And in verse 14, it says, And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. He's come here to Damascus to stop the way. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings. And the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I've got a plan for Saul. I've got a plan for Paul. He is going to become a propagator of the way. Right now, he's a persecutor, but I'm changing him. I'm transforming him. I've got a plan for him from being a persecutor to a propagator, from being a persecutor to the one being persecuted. And I'm going to use him greatly that 
Gentiles, people who are not Jews, are going to hear the gospel and they're going to become followers of Christ. And we see in verse, uh, verse 19 that he is with the disciples for some time. It says that he's with them. We don't know how many, how many weeks or, or how much time he's with them. It's not weeks. It says days. So he's with them. He, he, he's understanding now. He's putting things together. He knows the word of God. And he's seeing, well, Jesus talked to me. He's alive. That must mean he's the Messiah. He's putting things together. And we see in verse 20 that he immediately goes out and proclaims Jesus Christ. This is immediate. So this is, this is the beginning of how we become followers. Because of his obedience and the obedience of the other first believers, they are our ancestors in Christ. And so the good question that I have right here is, is when did he begin to preach Jesus? It says it right there. It says immediately. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying that he is the Son of God. And everyone was amazed. And they were saying, isn't he the one that came to terrorize the church? And now he's preaching the message of the church. He is propagating the way. You see, this is how his life inspires us. First of all, to love Jesus and love him so much that we are willing to obey him no matter what he asks us to do. And then secondly, it inspires us to share Jesus. And to share him immediately. There's a world out there. There are people around us, even in our own circle of influence, that don't know Christ. And they need to hear the message of the gospel. And who are they going to hear it from if it isn't you? If it isn't me? We need to love Jesus so much that we're willing to share him with others. The same man, Saul... He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same man who wanted to destroy the gospel now is saying, I'm not ashamed of it. And as I mentioned earlier this morning, Paul in in, 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 uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, he's talking to the Corinthians and he's saying, church, I am so glad that you guys accepted Christ and you guys are following Christ. But don't let the gospel stay right where you are. Go to the regions beyond. My desire is to see the gospel preached further and further. I think another way we can think about this is, is that each one of our circle, our circles, our circles of influence, it needs to be growing. Are you meeting new people? Are you sharing Jesus with the people that you know does not know Christ? Are you thinking about the people that you could begin to develop a relationship with? Well, but I don't have anything in common with them. Think about this picture here. It's friends of ours from Mexico. Right now they're saying, here am I, God, send me. They're wanting to go to Afghanistan with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I ask you, what do they have in common with an Afghani? You see, we 
purposefully develop common ground and build bridges with people in order to share the gospel with them. We're sincere in that process. We need to be sincere as we love Jesus before our world, as we share Jesus with those who do not know him. This morning, as as the musicians come up, as they play, I want you to be thinking about this. If you need to close your eyes right now, you can do that. Just be thinking about your own life, thinking about how God is moving in your heart. Let him speak to you. Let him move in you. Let that encounter have its full effect in your life. God, thank you very much for your love. Thank you so much that those first believers, those first followers didn't hold Jesus to themselves. Thank you that they just didn't say they loved Jesus but they loved him with obedience so much so that they were willing to share Jesus and even willing to give their lives for that cause. This morning, as we look at our own lives right now, Father, my prayer is that each one of us will allow the encounter of Jesus to totally transform our lives and to understand what the heart of God is the missionary heart of God. We see that story all throughout Scripture. Let that story just move in us, Father, this morning. God, this morning, as we think about people right now that, know, that don't know you, that need you, God, may you touch our hearts this morning for them right now. Touch our hearts. Touch our hearts, God. Move us. And God, as I I think about even uh, recently opportunities that I have had and that other followers of Christ in this room have had, maybe even at Starbucks, where the Holy Spirit says, go and talk to that person. But we say, God, but I don't know that person. And we say, no. Or maybe it's with our, our neighbor. Go and talk to that person. And we say, no, God, when we do that, that is sin. So please forgive us this morning. If that is you, talk to God about that right now. Ask him for forgiveness. And then pray for more opportunity. And then obey. Father God, have your way in us. We pray all these things in your precious, holy name.